0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, we are continuing our series in Acts, so if you'd like to turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, and we're going to read from about verse 25. Well, Julia and I will be around for a couple more weeks. Uh, we head out on the 2nd of December um, but I guess this is it for a while in terms of me being up here. I'm sure I'll be back again every now and then um, to do this. But, but uh, I, I just want to take this opportunity to, to thank you, to thank you for well, p- putting up with Julia and I. Um, you, you guys have been extremely kind, extremely gracious, very, very patient with us. Um, you've embraced us and, you, and you've, you've been so generous to us, not, not just in terms of financially generous, in terms of getting us ready to be able to to, to go and, and plant a church in New York City. But the, the generosity of spirit, um, that you, the, the grace that you've extended to Julia and I, the patience you've had with us, um, this is our church home, this is our family, and we will always, always be grateful for the, the high privilege of being, being, being part of this body. Thank you. That's uh, very kind. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. And that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead whom you have killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go, for if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for for the apostles, for the fact that they were rejoicing, happy to be counted worthy to suffer for your name. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning and we pray that we would be as brave and as bold as the apostles, that we would be as devoted to you as the apostles. Father, we ask that you would make us like Jesus or at least make us like the apostles who were trying to be like Jesus. We pray this in his name and to your glory. Amen. So I was in uh, Washington, D.C. a couple of months ago for a wedding. And uh, seeing as we were in town, Julia and I decided we were going to take a a walking tour of the National Monuments there in in D.C. And if you've never had the chance to see them at nighttime, it's a great way to see them. They're all lit up. Just looks fantastic. And it was a really good experience. We we really enjoyed it. it. It was great. I think my favorite part of that walking tour at night was to see the Lincoln Memorial. And something happened to me at the top of those steps, which I, I wasn't really ready for or expecting. I had a kind of a, a, a spiritual experience, I guess, for, for want of a better term. Um, so there's Lincoln sitting in the chair, all lit up like that at night, and there's this huge statue. And then to his right, to, to, to my left, I, you walk through these huge stone pillars. And, and just beyond those pillars it is... The, uh etched in one huge stone slab is the Gettysburg uh, Address. Uh, you know, four score and seven years ago, you know, the, very familiar, the one that every kid memorizes at least part of in school. So, so I read that, and then having read that, I walked over to the other side, Lincoln's other side, and again, through these huge stone pillars, just beyond those pillars on the wall is another speech, this time a much longer speech. It's not just on one, but on three huge stone slabs engraved, etched in them. And so I leant up against one of the the pillars with the other tourists and with the soft light that they had thrown on the speech that night, I could could read it. And I was stunned. I was amazed. I was completely taken of God. I wasn't expecting this at all. I I was just completely caught of God. In fact, I had to reread it to make sure I'd really read what I just read. You see, he says things in that speech which no president or no leader of any nation, for that matter, is supposed to say. I immediately texted some friends. um, It was kind of late at night, but I texted them anyway, because I wanted to see if they knew about this speech. They all knew about the other one on that side, but they they didn't know about this one. They they all had to look it up. And so here's an excerpt from that speech. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but we've got an excerpt from it here. Speaking of the North and the South, it's in the midst of the Civil War. He says, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God. And each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. That of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Stop and think about that for a moment. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which God now wills to remove, and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? If God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword." As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. together. Like I said, he doesn't sound like a president. Doesn't sound like, presidents aren't supposed to say these kinds of things. You know what they're supposed to say? They're supposed to say god is on our side that's what leaders of nations say god is on our side they're supposed to co-opt god they're supposed to be saying well god god's um god bless the north is what he should have been saying god bless this union god bless america but he doesn't say that in fact he says god isn't on their side but then again he's not on our side either god has his own purposes and it transcends us and our own interests In other words, you don't get to co-opt God and turn him into your cheerleader and turn him into your mascot. And if you think that it's offensive to associate God with cheerleader and mascot in the same sentence, then, well, yes, my point exactly. And it's precisely because Abraham Lincoln's God is not signed up to his team that he's able to do something, and this is very important that we get this, he's not signed up to his team, that he's able to do something that leaders of nations are never able to do. And it's this. He's able to implicate implicate not just a small section of the nation, not just a group of people in this nation who disagree with him, who are his enemies, but he's able to implicate the entire nation in sin and offense against God. No one escapes here. The people directly involved who are financially benefiting, straight off. The people, the nation as a whole, which financially benefited, indirectly. And and then the the people who just stood by and let this go on and, and watched while it happened. No one escapes. It is precisely because Lincoln's God is not signed up to his team. It's important that we get that to understand everything we're going to be talking about this morning that his, he recognizes God's freedom, his boundless freedom to see and to judge not just his enemy's sin, but his sin as well. This is why he doesn't cry, death to the enemy. And in fact, this is, the, this is the eerie and I think the most disturbing part of this whole speech. He doesn't cry death to the enemy. What he says is, maybe it's death to us all until we pray the price. Maybe it's death to us all, but for, for building an economy on this kind of evil and allowing this kind of evil to go on in the first place. Well, well, like I said, he doesn't sound like a president because you see, kings and politicians—they don't talk like that. They don't. They just don't. He doesn't sound like a president. You know what he sounds like? He sounds like a prophet. Sounds like a pro- you ever read the prophets? If you haven't, go back and read through the prophets in the Old Testament. Whenever you read the prophets, you never read them and think, Huh, I wish I was that guy. You, you just don't read it that way, right? You never wish you were that guy because those guys are the ones who always bring the message and no one ever wants to hear. And here's what no one ever wants to hear. They don't want to hear, God's not on your side. That you don't get to co-opt God. That you don't you don't get to turn him into your mascot or chili. You don't get to co-opt God. And God has a boundless freedom to see and to judge not just your enemy's sin, but your sin as well. No one ever wants to hear that. And so the response is always the same. The prophets the prophets are imprisoned, the prophets are run out of town, the prophets are hunted, the prophets are stoned, the prophets are sawn in two, and the prophets are shot in theaters. This is what happens. Now, what, I, what I'm hoping is that all of this is going to help us to better understand the scale, to just grasp the scale and the magnitude of just what the apostles are up to here as they announce Christ. I'm hoping that this will help us catch a glimpse of the apostles' self-understanding and their understanding of their place in this world because if we get that, we might understand ourselves better as a church and understand our place in this world. The apostles clearly saw themselves as standing in the line of the prophets. that They saw themselves as standing in the prophetic tradition that they did. Look, here's how the, the conversation goes. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Let's just take the first line and the last line of that speech. Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. God has given the spirit to those of us who obey him. We must obey God rather than men. God has given his spirit to those of us who obey him. Now let's just stop. Let's pause and think about who they're saying this to. Who are they saying this to? Israel had received the law. And in order to obey God, you obey the law. If you obeyed the law, you obeyed God. And so, as we have as been pointed out before, the Pharisees came up with many, many different rules and regulations and laws in order to make sure they were following those original 613 laws properly. But then someone thought, well, wait a second, how do we know if we're following these laws and rules and regulations properly? So they came up with other rules and regulations to make sure they were following those rules and regulations to make sure they were following those originals, and so it went on. And they had thousands upon thousands of different rules and regulations and laws. This was their meticulous way of doing what? Of obeying God. This is their meticulous way of obeying God. And so under the burden of their own legalism, they could hear more clearly than others what the apostles were saying. The apostles were saying, God's not on your side. You don't get to co-opt God this way. You don't. God has a boundless freedom to see and to judge, not just your enemy's sin, but your sin as well. In the same speech, he he says that God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. Again, think about who he's saying this to. Where, and think about where he's saying this. That, that just earlier they've been released, miraculously released from prison, and they're told, go to the temple. They're announcing this message in the temple, day after day. And, and who ran the temple? The Sadducees. The Sadducees ran the temple. The temple was where Israel sacrificed The temple was where Israel could repent. The temple was where Israel as a nation could receive forgiveness for our sins. The Sadducees ran the temple. The temple legitimated the Sadducees. It, It secured their position as Israel's legitimate leaders and representatives. And along come the apostles saying, No, repentance and forgiveness are no longer in the temple. They are in Jesus Christ. And they could hear the temple crumbling around them. You see, the Pharisees said, we obey the law, so God is on our side. The Sadducees said, no, 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 we run the temple. That's where repentance and forgiveness is, so God is on our side. And the apostles come along and say, no, God's not on either of your sides. You don't get to co-opt God that way. You don't get to turn him into your mascot or your cheerleader. You don't get to co-opt God. Now, if you want to feel the, the, the weight of this, the tension in this, the force of this. It's, it's like I've said before, it would be like Gary wandering around, looking at the national monuments in Washington, D.C., and looking at the buildings, and, and actually, he was there that same weekend that he was in for the same wedding that we were, we were there a couple of months ago. And, and as we looked around, well, I, I pointed to the White House and these other buildings, and, and Gary said, you see all these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another, for one greater than the White House is here. And and I took a step back because I wasn't sure what he meant. And then when we looked at the Constitution together, he said, I have come to fulfill the Constitution. I am the embodiment. I have fulfilled the Constitution, the American Constitution. And I took a couple more steps back because now I was getting worried. And we we went to the top. I took him to the top of the, the Lincoln Memorial. And and he said, do you not know that God can raise up children for Abraham out of these rocks if he wants to? From now on, to be American is not tied to claiming descendancy from Abraham Lincoln or the Constitution or the White House. From now on, to be American is to be a disciple and follower of me, Gary Salvo, to shape your life around me. That is what it means to be a true American. Now, you you think that's lunacy, right? You think that's crazy. But Jesus said, You see these buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. For one greater than the temple is here. But what about the Sabbath? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But but wait, what about the law? I I have come to fulfill the law. I am the embodiment. I fulfill the law. Yeah, but, but what about the fact that we have Abraham as our father... Jesus said, don't think yourselves, that you can simply say, oh, we have Abraham as our father and that settles the matter. Don't you know that God can raise children out of these rocks for Father Abraham if he wants to? From now on, to be Israel, to be true Israel is to be with me, to be my disciple, to shape your life around me. He was redefining and reshaping the national life. Can you feel the tension now? Reshaping the national life around himself and The apostles, right here in Acts chapter 5, are just picking up where he left off. Forgiveness and repentance, it's no longer in the temple. It's in Jesus Christ. Obedience to God is no longer obeying the law. It's obeying and following Jesus. Uh, We're no longer waiting for the Spirit to come and fill the temple because the Spirit has already come and filled those of us who follow Jesus Christ. They're reshaping and redefining the national life around this person, this person of Jesus Christ. This is always a very difficult moment in the life of the church. It's always a very difficult moment in the life of the church. And it doesn't matter which generation and which nation. You you may be part of the church in the Ukraine. This church, TBC, has very strong ties, as you know, to the church in the Ukraine. You may be part of the church in Rwanda, As you know, TBC has very strong ties to the church in Rwanda as well. You may be part of the church in Britain, you may be part of the church in America. It doesn't matter which generation and which nation, the church of Jesus Christ is always faced with this very difficult decision and question in every nation and every generation, and it's this. Is our identity as the church, as the body of Christ, as the bride of Christ, Is our identity as the church so wrapped up in our national identity? Is it going to be so wrapped up in our nationhood, in our national identity, in our political identity, in our ideological identity? Are we going to be so enamored and attached and tied to those things that we end up co-opting God to those things and just co-opting God for whatever it is we happen to be doing at the time? Or, Or will we be able to? Be open to the prophetic voice so that we can be the prophetic voice to our culture, to this world. Will we, will we be able to stand in that prophetic tradition? This is a, this is a difficult decision to make. It always is. And, and here's how it works out sometimes, right? And, and this is just an example of why this is so difficult. So some people, have, have, many times we've been asked, well, you know, why is it here at TBC... As a church, we often point out the sins of capitalism. How how can we often point out the sins of capitalism, the people who suffer under the wheels of it? How can we do that? Why would we do that when we know that communism is so much worse? Well, well, it's a good question, but, but here's the straightforward answer, and it's this. I didn't know that we were sitting around here so that we could talk about other people's sins. Uh, we're not here to talk about other people's sins. We're going to talk about our sin. And the reason is not, not for our salvation, but for our vocation. So that we as a church of Jesus Christ, we, here in America, we want to reflect God's goodness, God's compassion, God's love. Into, we want to reflect the image of God into this world. And in order to do that better, we have to continually work at disentangling ourselves as a church, as the renewed humanity, the image bearers. We've got to continually disentangle ourselves from the sins of our own culture and situation. And guess what? Our sin is going to show up in our systems, in our economic systems, in our own political systems. Our sin shows up in our systems, their sin shows up in theirs. It's pretty straightforward, really, isn't it? And so we're not going to play the game of, well, at least our sin's not as bad as theirs. We're 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 not going to play that. We're not going to sit around here talking about other people's sin. We're going to deal with our sin because we want to reflect the image of God right where we are. But like I said, this is a very difficult decision that the church in every generation and every nation is faced with. Because you show me, you show me a single prophet who is considered by their generation and their culture, who is considered by their generation to be a great patriot. You show me an apostle who is considered to be, by their generation, a great patriot. They're not. They're considered traitors. Please understand what's going on here in Acts chapter 5. This is why the apostles are imprisoned. This is why they are flogged. This is why, they are, this is why they are, people are furious with them and want to kill them and put them to death. This is not an easy thing and decision that we are called to be as we stand in the prophetic tradition. It never is. It's not easy on a, on a corporate scale as, as a decision that we make as a church together. It's not easy on a personal level either. I, I want to bring this right down to the personal level for us. Okay, we'll bring it right down to the personal level. Um, speaking to a friend uh, a few, earlier on this year, a few months ago. And he was really beating himself up over a particular sin. He was just really troubled by it. He felt it was a sin issue. He, he couldn't sleep at night. He, he was just guilt ridden. And I said, well, you know, on, on the one hand, I'm, I'm kind of encouraged that you're not so cold hearted, that you, you, you have a sensitivity to this particular issue and, and you want to put it right. So that's, that's a good thing. I'm kind of encouraged. But on the other hand, I'm a little concerned. I'm a little disturbed that you would make such a big deal out of this particular issue. I'm a little concerned because I'm not sure you understand what a scumbag you really are. And he was stunned for a moment and then he laughed like you did. He started laughing because he knew what I meant. Have you looked in your heart lately and have you seen what is there? By the way, this is me being pastoral, so you know, if you come to me, you know what to expect. This is how it goes. But But we're still good friends, so we're we're okay. We did lunch last week. But but this is a difficult thing for us to hear, even on a personal Never mind a national level, on a personal level. This is a very difficult thing for us to hear. You see, we live in a culture that encourages us to tell ourselves how good we are, how right we are, to tell ourselves that we are lovable, to tell ourselves that we are worthy, to tell ourselves that we are special. Whenever I hear someone say, God loves me because I'm special, I always ask, hey, how about me? Am I special too? Yeah, you're special too. Oh yeah, what about him over there? Is he special too? Yeah, he's special too. We're all special. Well, if we're all special, that kind of changes the meaning of the word special, doesn't it? I mean, redefining terms here, I'm not sure what you mean. This is, But we live in a culture that tells us to continually reinforce a sense of our own goodness, our own specialness, our own own lovability, to reinforce a sense of our own worthiness. I've got to tell you, this is a frantic way to live. It's frantic. It it is so frantic, it is an exhausting way to live. Because you've got to continually convince yourself that you are good, even when you catch a glimpse of evil in the mirror. And you think, what the heck was that doing there? And and, and you've got to continually convince yourself that you are lovable, even though you know how hateful you can be at times. And you've got to continually convince yourself that you are worthy, even though you know how worthlessly you have treated your husband or your wife, your kids or your friends, even just this week. No, it's a frantic way to live to have to continually to to, to kind of avoid your your own the darkness in your own heart and and continually prop up your your fragile and teetering ego. You know one of the best things you can do? One of the best things you can do is to come to terms perhaps for the first time with just how small and tiny souled you so often are to come to terms with just how ghoulish you can be at times, to come to terms with just how dark and stony-hearted you really are, just to come to terms and recognize it, to recognize it. You need, you need some help doing this? You need some, well, here's a piece of advice. It's a bit odd advice. It may help some of you. It may not help others. But there's a book by the Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky called The Notes from the Underground Man. It's one of his earliest works. It's, it's a kind of a gateway to the rest of his works. And what he does in there, which he does in most of his works, but I think he does it especially well in here, is he holds up a mirror to the human condition. He holds up a mirror to the human condition. I've got a friend of mine who's reading this for the first time right now, and I asked him just on Wednesday, actually, I said, hey, how are you getting on with it? Uh, And he said, well, I'm reading it slowly because I see myself on every page. I read every page and I think there is something like this is going on inside me. I'm reading it slowly. It's actually one of his thinner books. It, it, it's, it's not a long read, but it's not an easy read. What if you're going to read it like that and if the Spirit uses it in your life that way? This is... Uh, some of you may be wondering, you know, gosh, Stephen, you must, you must just be guilt-ridden. You must walk around under a cloud of condemnation. You must be beating yourself. This is miserable. Nope, <laughs> that's not my life, and that's not what I want for any of you either. No, that's not what I'm pushing here. That's not what I want. This is, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. You see, it's only in the moment when you come to terms with how ghoulish you can be at times, how dark and stony-hearted you really are, when you, it's only when you come to terms with how, how warped and, and tiny and, and, and s- s- small and tiny soul you can really be, it's only when you come to terms with that that you can begin to enjoy Let me underline the word enjoy for you. Let me circle it. It's only then that you can begin to enjoy. Let me highlight the word enjoy for you. It's only then that you can begin to enjoy the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only then that you will understand what it means to be loved by God, to be forgiven by the holy, holy, holy Lord God almighty. It's only then that you can begin to revel in his goodness and his favor and his kindness and revel in the freedom that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until then you're going to keep clinging to some other weird Gospel. You see, this is not the gospel of Stephen, you're really not that bad, you're a pretty good guy. It's not that. This is not the gospel of Stephen, you're special. This is not the gospel of Stephen, you are lovable, and Stephen, you are worthy. It's not that gospel. Nah. I already know what goes on in my head and heart. I don't need that. This is the gospel of God's grace. And let me just translate that for you. This is the gospel of God's undeserved, unmerited, unearned goodness and compassion and favor poured out on you. Let me just underline that again. This is, this is the gospel of God's, of God's undeserved, unearned, unmerited goodness and kindness and compassion and favor poured out on you and me. And that is why I want to invite some of you this morning who, who you may have known the gospel for a very, very long time. But the truth is, you know, we've got to keep speaking the gospel to each other. You know that? We've got to keep speaking the gospel out over each other. because That's what we need. And so I want to invite some of you who have been living that half-life. I want to invite you out of that half-life of trying to convince yourself you're okay. Because you're not. I want to invite you, if you've ever had a sneaking suspicion that there is something terribly wrong with you, that's because there is. And I want to encourage you to Father, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I want to encourage you to follow that suspicion all the way to the foot of the cross, all the way back to Jesus, and there, maybe for the first time, or maybe once again, to revel in his goodness and love and compassion and favor poured out on you and on me. Well, this is never an easy thing. To be, we're called to be open To the prophetic voice so that we can be the prophetic voice in our culture, in our world. But it's never an easy thing at a personal level. That's what we've been talking about just now. But also at a corporate level as a church, it's never an easy decision to make. At a personal and corporate level, it's very difficult to be open to the prophetic voice so that we can be the prophetic voice. That is why speeches like Abraham Lincoln's speech, I love it. It is so rare. It is so unique. It's so unique that we really don't know what to do with it. There's a reason why your kids aren't memorizing that speech in school and they're memorizing the other one, right? You know that. It is so rare. And that is why I love Gamaliel's speech. Gamaliel's speech is just as rare. here's Here's what happens. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel... A teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. And then he talks some about some of the people, other leaders who have come and gone, who who failed. And he says, therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But, But if it is from God you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. This is Gamaliel created a space for them to carry on, for the apostles to carry on. It's remarkable. He says, yes, they're radically redefining what it means to be Israel. Yes, they're subverting the political, national, and ideological norms. And yes, they're determined to make us guilty of shedding this innocent blood. They won't stop holding this sin out before us. But, Let's not crush them. This is incredible. Leaders never say this stuff. He's saying let's create space for people who want to radically reorganize our worldview and show us where we are going wrong. He he refuses to say God is on our side. God legitimates everything we do. Instead, he asks, what if this is from God? That's the question mark that he puts out. What if this is from God? How can we be like Gamaliel, somewhat open to the prophetic voice, so that we can be the prophetic voice to our nation, to this world? How can we be like Gamaliel? I want to just fast forward to somewhere you're not going to get to probably sometime next year, but Acts chapter 17. Okay, you'll come across this again later. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. That The Thessalonians had kicked them out, right? They chased them out. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. You see, I'm not sure that Gamaliel and the Bereans, and I think they, they were alike, I think Gamaliel was like the Bereans. I don't think that they just accepted any old thing and just embraced any old new idea and wind of teaching that came along. They wasn't like that. But they refused. Here's what they refused to do. Okay? They refused to cut this conversation short. They refused to terminate the conversation prematurely. They were willing to do the hard work, and it is hard work, to have those difficult conversations, to ask those difficult questions, and to go back, to go back and read the scriptures. And read the scriptures in such a way, not so that they could could reinforce what they thought they already knew about it. Not reading the scriptures so they could find a proof text to disprove what this guy was saying. But to really read the scriptures in earnest to see if what they were saying was true. That's hard work. But they were willing to do it. I think Amelio was willing to do it. Just recently I got talking to an academic who teaches at a major university near here. Very bright young woman. And she was saying that for a long time she has had to kind of keep her academic life and her church life separate. The way she described it, I thought was a good description. She said, I've, I've kind of had to live schizophrenically for quite some time now, but the tension's getting to me. I thought it was very honest and very real and, and, and a good description of what was going on. And, and the reason is, part of the reason is because she's, in the different churches she's been involved with. she's never felt that the church was the place where you could bring these questions and ask the kinds of questions and have the kinds of discussions that need to be had. She just never felt that that was the place. Now that's sad. That's really sad that that has been her experience of the church. But you know what's encouraging? You know what's encouraging is I could look this very sharp young woman in the eye and I could honestly tell her that here at TBC you have a leadership and others in the church body who are more than willing to sustain that conversation, to ask those questions who aren't going to shy away from the difficult ideas and difficult questions, who are happy to have that conversation. That's really encouraging. Just recently, there's a, another pastor in town reached out to me because he'd heard I've done some work on atheism. And, he, and, he, and the reason why he wanted to talk to me is because he says he has a couple coming to his church who are atheists. And the only reason why they keep coming to church is because they want to hide their atheism from their family and from their Christian family and their Christian friends. Now, I think that's really sad that they, that they can't, they don't feel that with their other Christians they've been able to ask the questions and have those conversations. That's sad. But you know what's really encouraging? Is they found a pastor of another church here in town, the pastor of the church, and and they know that they can be real with that guy and open up and have the sustained conversation that needs to take place. Just a few weeks ago, I had the privilege of baptizing a dear friend of mine. And uh, in in his testimony, he said uh, said that, that when he was growing up, he had lots of questions, but he was always told, shut up, that's the wrong question, don't ask that question. And he said that they were very intellectually rigid. They said, no, we've got to read the Scriptures only this way. There can't possibly be any other way of reading Scripture or interpreting it than the way that we do it. And and so there wasn't any space. He didn't leave. He was pushed out. I mean, you might as well just push him out, kick him out, if that's what you're going to do. So that's really sad that that was his experience of, of numerous churches. But you know what's really encouraging? Here at Temple Bible Church, he's found a group of people who he can have those conversations, those sustained conversations, and ask all the questions he wants to. And as a result, today... It's a few weeks on now. He is a baptized follower of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And as the the culture continues to drift away from the church, as the culture continues to drift further and further away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is precisely the kind of church that this world, that this culture is going to need. And that's what you've got here at Temple Bible Church. You've got a leadership. It has been the highest privilege for me to work with the leaders at this church. The the, the the staff, the the elders. It's just been incredible. It's been an incredible experience. You've got a leadership here and you've got a church here where you can have those questions. There are no questions which are too silly or too hostile, right? There's no no idea is too too threatening. It's not like we, we don't have an index of banned books. We're not burning books we haven't read yet. This isn't Nazi Germany, okay? We, we have, you have a leadership here. You have a, a, a team here. You have a church here where you can ask those questions, and we will not cut the conversation short. We're not going to terminate it. We're, we're going to sustain that conversation. We're going to sustain it for as long as it takes. For as long as it takes for you to come to know the love and grace and goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why Julia and I are extremely confident and filled with hope for this church and the ministry that goes on not only in central Texas but around the world. Your ministry is going to reach New York now. We're confident about the ministry that's going on here in this church, the future of this church. Because you've got that kind of leadership and you've got that kind of a team and and that kind of a church. They're more like Gamaliel. They don't want to find themselves fighting God. We're we're more like the Bereans here at TVC, more noble-minded. I really believe that about this church. That's why Julia and I are confident about the future of this church. That's why Julia and I will always, always be very grateful for having been part of this body. And, and that is why uh, it kills us to have to leave. Let's come before God in prayer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for Temple Bible Church. Thank you for bringing us here back at 98. Thank you that this has become our family and our home. Thank you for the many friends and family that we have here, people who have been so incredibly kind to us. Father, we thank you that, uh, for the incredible team that we have here as a leadership and for the church that this is, the church which I believe will be more like Gamaliel and the Bereans, noble-minded, seeking the scriptures out to find out what is true. We'll sustain those conversations as long as possibly as they can and as need be, so that people will be loved in that way. Father, thank you that this is a church which will be open to your prophetic voice, so that we as a church will be that prophetic voice in this world. Father, to your glory we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.